Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. Um, we are delighted to have you with us and thankfully some people did some things who are not British. We're finally going finally. to different countries, it's amazing. Finally, yes. Um, so we've got a few things in store for you today but we're going to start off with something that's cheerful and positive because we don't do that very often and we're going to go over to Jordan and we're going to be talking about the wedding sort of of Princess Iman uh, who is the daughter of King Abdullah and Queen Rania of Jordan and on the 12th of March at the Royal Family's Palace, she married a Venezuelan-born tech entrepreneur called Jamil Thermiotis. Before we properly kick off, I should say I didn't watch any of the actual wedding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it wasn't really my fault because it happened at the exact same time we recorded the podcast last week. Really was, inconvenient timing, guys. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they just they planned it deliberately, I think. Um and so it wasn't my fault at all. I just, I, I'm so dedicated to the podcast that like I, I, I chose that over the wedding and then I could have gone back and watched it afterwards, but I was just so exhausted from all of the incredible effort I put into the podcast, guys. So that's the exact reason. But of course, I, I was very interested in the fashion in particular. So I think we're going to talk mostly about the look, the gown, uh, which is really what people care about weddings for anyway is the bride's dress yeah when we thought for other weddings no one's been like uh what was the second reading given guys you don't care i don't care <laughs> you didn't talk about the chairs actually there probably would be somebody who'd be, who'd be like, <laughs> you didn't talk about the chairs this would come up yeah um but yes so we we thought we'd talk a little bit about uh what you wore so um i will put the a link to some images from the wedding in the description as i always do so that if you haven't seen it you can have a look and follow along but yeah i was really interested i think because if you look at the jordanian brides in the past they've always chosen like really contemporary outfits i was really interested beforehand to know like is she going to go with something that like in 20 years we'll look at it and we'll go yeah that was a 2020 2020s <laughs> wedding um or would you go some, something a bit more classic so yeah before I even started I was definitely intrigued to see what kind of direction she'd go in obviously we don't actually see Iman in sort of gowns that often but they, she did have a henna ceremony a week maybe before the wedding um where she wore kind of a gown and that was kind of what everyone was basing it on what she was going to wear because she wore a white ivory-esque gown very simple with um by a jordanian designer called rima de Boer, um with her mother's wedding belt which was mm. very much not in keeping with the rest of the look no sweet choice but like did not match <laughs> like okay you've got like simple elegant and then like pure like 90s tackiness mm -hmm. and i love it I felt like we were going in blind and that was the closest thing we had to uh, the jordanian bride's Ha up until that point had always gone very western for their uh gown designers so it was like uh, oh she's gone jordanian for the henna ceremony will she stick with that or will she go back to a western one so intriguing yeah like her mother uh, queen rania she chose bruce oldfield who was uh who is still a big designer of camilla's outfits and was friends with diana but we won't get into that because they had a big falling out and that's a different topic but she, he did <laughs> design a lot of things for diana and uh, camilla so he's kind of used to dressing royals and she in the end she picked a dior gown and i think 
if she wasn't going to go for a local Jordanian designer, which would have been nice, obviously, but if she wasn't going to go for that, then I think something like Dior was probably the best choice just because I think, I mean, if you look at Diana's wedding gown, obviously, I mean, I hate it, but it's very iconic. Um, but the Emanuels who designed Princess Diana's uh, gown they closed they separated as a couple in 1990 and their brand closed they so they don't currently exist like it doesn't really stand the test of time the designer anyway we don't know that name now um whereas I think in 50 years time people still know Dior and know the reference points so it's kind of like it's a classic choice yeah and there was also like a very sweet nod Jamil who obviously a man was marrying um grew up spent some of his childhood in Venezuela and his father owned the kind of Dior brand shops in Venezuela when he was younger so it was a very kind of sweet nod being like I'm not she's not she didn't make a Greek designer or a Jordanian designer but she was like this is a little little, it kind of felt like her choosing to wear her mum's wedding belt it was a very sort of sentimental touch and I liked it yeah I like those I like the sentimental touches when they're like they're like easter eggs like you wouldn't have to know that they were there you don't you, you don't need to understand that that connection in order to enjoy the dress um but once you do know it kind of is an extra level of oh that's really sweet like I I, I loved that she wore her mum's belt but as we said it definitely did not fit the gown at all um and it was very you had to kind of know that's her mum's belt to understand why she was wearing it whereas with this like you had you didn't have to know any connection between her and Dior to just think oh that's a pretty gown or whatever you thought about it but um once you know that you're kind of like oh that's that's actually a really sweet little choice that she made that kind of you know she paid tribute to her family at the henna ceremony which was very much about sort of uh her family and her community and the women around her and then at the wedding which was something that was for both of them she was paying tribute to kind of his family and his uh community which I think is a really nice balance yeah it was very I think particularly in circumstances where I was like it's in every circumstance these days where like a royal marries a non-royal but it does tend to be very heavily royal focused and I think particularly when the bride is royal because weddings tend to be more bridal focused anyway so it was it was a very nice touch for her to like to do it because like you said it was it didn't change anything about the day I wasn't like oh I thought this dress was really ugly until I found out this secret twist behind it but it was just something that um Jamil and his family would have noticed and be like oh that's nice yeah yeah that's a nice little touch so yeah I first saw the gown when she was sitting down um because you know after we finished the podcast I went on Instagram just to have a look at what was going on and if there was any pictures out and so I first saw it when she was kind of sitting down during the ceremony and I thought it was very beautiful um it was kind of it's seemed modest uh but it didn't feel kind of stuffy because it was broken up with the lace so it wasn't just like just one fabric I thought the lace on the wrist was really nice as well because it kind of um it was a sort of additional break and then I saw her stand up (laughs) and it's just I I, it's really strange because I don't know anything about design I'm not I've never made a dress in my life I don't know how you do that but um and I don't really know all the correct terms and things but um I thought when she was sitting down okay it's going to be a pretty dress she's going to stand up and it's going to be kind of a column like a straight up and down dress um but then the bottom wasn't straight cut it kind of was it kind of sort of tapered out and I think that was just a really beautiful choice and it was so small like there wasn't any gigantic embroidery or anything like that but it just really like finished off the look perfectly when I saw it head to toe um because I think I think she was going to want to wear something that was quite modest and I think it could have just ended up being 
a boring bit of fabric that she happened to put on her and you know not that interesting because she did you know she has those things that restrict her um but I felt like every they took every opportunity they could to stop it from being stuffy so like handling those lace panels gave a bit of variation gave something for the eye to look at it kind of relaxed it a little bit so it wasn't just a restrictive bit of fabric um and then yeah not having just a straight up and down dress and kind of having it um really soft and floaty at the bottom um it just it lightened it up really beautifully I can't even really describe it I'm doing a terrible job um <laughs> but I, th I think every everything that I would have thought in my head like oh this maybe the sleeves are going to be too long and I don't really love a long sleeve or maybe it's going to be too restrictive at the top and too stiff I'm not going to like that or maybe it's going to be just be straight up and down I'm not going to so that's going to be boring every concern I had they were like no we're going to address that um so it's lovely it was beautiful it was such a simple classic gown but it was perfect in the way it was so simple um and I think I I obviously I've seen I'd seen um Rania's wedding dress and I'd seen Queen Noel's wedding dress but I didn't really know what to expect sort of going into the wedding and I was mm. like will she wear a tiara will she wear a headscarf will it be like a block will it be you know mm. short sleeve I don't know um and then I saw before obviously while we were setting up for the podcast I was watching the arrivals and I was seeing this kind of like gowns and cocktail dresses type of vibe but obviously very modest um because it was a um a nika ceremony which is the like blessing this part where they sign a contract essentially I, I wasn't sure if she would have, you know, like an entire sort of blocked out mm. one look. I kind of I'm thinking kind of like the Duchess of Sussex's wedding dress, but yes. like, yeah, like completely covered, um, but with a higher neckline. So I was when I like I like you, the first thing I saw was a sort of a sat down picture. And I was like, oh, lace. Yeah. Um, racy. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, did you expect that? Um, but I think the, it was one of those gowns where the more I looked at it, the more I absolutely fell in love with it. And I think it was how simple it was because simple wedding dresses I think when they're done right when they're done well are absolutely stunning yeah and I think when I first saw it from the kind of neck down I kind of had a vibe of like late or early 2010s prom dresses like not big puffy taffeta things but like column block color strapless it wasn't strapless but that kind of vibe um and then obviously when you see the full-length dress and it had that slight sort of dimension at the waist and the very small train um and I saw you know started to see videos of her walking in it and the way it moved was very sort of like it's almost like water it's also yeah, it's beautiful flowy and fluid I don't know much about what Dior's fashion is like in general like they're not a fashion brand I'm that sort of on par with but if, it, if it's anything like this gown <laughs> it's very good it was absolutely perfect well here you go you've heard it here first Dior very good <laughs> You're going to put that on their website. Giving that small underground brand some promo on our on our podcast because uh, they like to help the little guy. Yeah. Um, no, I think I, I'm not a massive fan of I don't I, I'm weirdly fussy about wedding gowns, um, <laughs> but I um, I don't like anything that's too big and too puffy and too uh, bonkers. I don't like anything that's also too simple. What I really like about Iman's is that, yeah, they just um, they recognised that they had some restrictions and that they wanted the, the gown to be simple, but it didn't feel boring. Yeah, every I'm, I'm the same as you. Every time I saw it, I just loved it a little bit more. I thought it was the perfect choice for her, perfect choice for the situation. The lace at the sleeves was a really like ingenious touch because, like you said, it kind of broke it up again. It broke it up in the blocks, but also 
it kind of it did very much look like a dress that needed three quarter length sleeves <laughs> but it obviously couldn't have three quarter length sleeves but the lace didn't feel like it was sort of tacked onto the bottom it felt very much like it was part of the dress but also I felt equally like if that lace wasn't there the dress would have been just as good because it would have been a three quarter length sleeve um and I obviously it man's such a petite person yeah um and petite royal women tend to either go for really boring and simple dresses or they like go quite sort of wide and yeah get swamped in it a bit so I think it managed to sort of like you said it combined the sort of the two with being simple but not too simple without being too so fussy you lost a man it was very much a man wearing the dress rather than the dress wearing her yeah because obviously Dior is a western brand a French brand and I, I think instead of looking at this and saying right what what can't we do with this dress what's not appropriate and how are we restricted they looked at it and they went okay well what can we do and um that's a really I think that always ends up in a better design in the end like I think this dress would have worked completely be- just as beautifully on any almost any bride really it was tailored to perfection and there wasn't really anything on it that could go wrong on anyone like it would have suited anyone and I think Iman sort of the entire wedding was so simple and like the color scheme was very like whites and pearls and simple so the other big thing um about any royal wedding look that we have to talk about is of course the tiara um so again I think we I wasn't necessarily sure that she would wear a tiara because there's not the Jordanian royals Queen Rania does have a few tiaras but she doesn't really wear them very often at all. And it's kind of, you know, we've, it's been a long time since the last Jordanian royal wedding that's been this big. So we haven't really known um, exactly what she was going to wear, but she did wear a tiara. Thank you. Um, and <laughs> it caused a bit of a mystery. And I think it's still causing a bit of a mystery. I think, so one person who's uh, an expert in the Jordanian royal family said on like Twitter or something that it was Chalmay, the um, French fashion designer and a uh, fashion designer jewelry designer and then um a good friend of mine tiara mania who's an expert in tiaras um speculated that it might be one that was worn by princess muna who is the paternal grandmother of princess iman and then the press seemed to see these two things that were just speculation neither of them were saying that this is definitely true um they saw these two things combined them and decided well that's the story it's a Xiaomi tiara which was worn by Princess Muna and it turns out that's probably very unlikely that it was worn by Princess Muna um but yeah the press just kind of did what they do saw two unconfirmed things combined them and ran with the story and then that became the story (laughs) yeah it was kind of like by the time we came out of the podcasting there were all these different rumors about the tiara and I was like I'll I'll give them some time to figure it out and I'll look again later. And then it's good later now. Everyone's like, okay, everything we said earlier was wrong, but we still don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, that doesn't help me, guys. It doesn't help when the people who are supposed to know the answers don't tell me what they are. Exactly. And Tiara Mania has said that she thinks that the Jordanian royals are probably being quiet about it deliberately, which I think makes sense because you know they've been criticized quite heavily for some of their spending and things in the past and their kind of very luxurious lifestyle. Um, and so if they were buying a new tiara that's obviously going to be something that's expensive and so it might not play very well for them so it actually kind of benefits them to just stay quiet and let everybody believe that it's a hand-me-down even if it's not so it's we, pro- we might not get any confirmation from the Jordanian royals anytime soon anyway it's one and it's also I think as a tiara like we don't see that many Jordanian tiaras anyway and the pictures we have are from mostly like 
over 20 years ago so they're grainy and not brilliant so we were I, everyone was kind of really zooming in on pictures of Iman's chair being like well it has this one thing but I also don't know if it looks like any other chairs you've seen because we've not got one from this exact angle <laughs> it, was just, it, was, it was I felt very sorry for everyone I always feel sorry for people who do fashion IDs same um but yeah I did feel particularly sorry this time because they were really battling against the um lack of good tiara photos we have from Jordan um yeah so I the tiara itself uh was very simple it's only diamonds it's quite small but not so small that it kind of fades into her hair or anything like that I think it was very similar to the dress it was so in keeping with the dress to have something that felt simple without being boring and it also I, I don't know how to really describe this but even just from the front it looked Arabic <laughs> um that makes sense. like it looked like I, I don't know just the, the the sort of shape of it it kind of it looked like something that I would have imagined seeing on Rania or somebody else like that like the shapes um just seemed very appropriate it didn't feel like a you know something like uh I don't know like the cameo tiara in Sweden is made up of these little Napoleonic um uh cameos but uh yeah it's very connected to kind of their their to Europe and their royal family and so it would look really strange on a Jordanian bride who has no connection to to Napoleon necessarily in a school I taught at once there was in one of our units on Islam they were writing postcards from you know a pilgrimage to Mecca and one of the things they had to do was decorate it with like specific like Arabic geometric patterns oh yeah yeah um and it kind of it was that kind of um like weirdly angular but then right when it's going to be angular it was really soft yes yes that's what it's like <laughs> like it's ang- it, it's pointy but it feels soft that's that's I'm glad I'm not just making this up and it does you understand kind of what I'm saying so so yeah I thought anyway that it kind of it was the perfect tiara for a man it like suited her beautifully but it was also the perfect tiara for this dress yeah like it wasn't ostentatious it wasn't absolutely huge um it also wasn't like you said it wasn't tiny it didn't disappear like it it was stood out from her head and from the veil um which in itself was really, really simple um and it combined really nicely I think with the sort of again with the dress and also with the kind of it was it was a kind of afternoonish ceremony um late it was evening I think actually in Jordan um and like the the way they where they were sat and the pictures they took afterwards the sun was sort of shining off everything and making it kind of reflect really well and I I'm, I'm sure like people think about this all the time when they do weddings but it was clear that a man or you know her family or her designers had said you know what if you're going to have a six o'clock wedding and your photos are going to be taken at seven you need a tiara that's going to sparkle yes yes definitely and the other kind of mystery around this tiara is that there is some Arabic script at the side of the tiara. So that's not unusual. Uh, Queen Rania has a tiara which has got a lot of Arabic script in it. And I, I think it's quite cool. I mean, it would, it, would, it would feel strange in the UK to have a tiara that has like Queen written in, in diamonds um, or God. <laughs> or, you know, that, that would feel really weird. But for some reason, the way that and, I, and it's strange because to me, obviously, it's like a foreign text and it's very, very different from our alphabet. So it looks really beautiful. It looks like 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 just a design, like calligraphy or something, but, it, but without looking like letters to me because I don't understand it. Whereas to, to people who speak Arabic and read Arabic, it must just look like letters. <laughs> it's not any different really to having God in giant diamonds on your tiara. But 
anyway, it works. And uh, so, yeah, it's a kind of family thing that they've done before. And I think so that one side, it definitely says uh, something about Allah. And I think there's been some debate with various Arabic speakers about what it might say. I think the last thing I saw was that it kind of says my faith in Allah, which apparently Iman translates as faith in Arabic. Um, so that's a really nice like nod to Iman, but also a nod to kind of their faith, which is obviously very important to them as a family. Um, and it felt natural as part of the design. It didn't feel sort of like, yeah, like God in diamonds. It, it felt very subtle and beautiful, uh, but also kind of very personal to her. Yeah, you could definitely look at the tiara for ages and not even notice the script was yes. there because it was, it wasn't like tucked behind the ears, but it was sort of at the end, sort of fading back into the headband part of the tiara. Um, and it it wasn't kind of, you know, massive. Obviously nothing about this tiara was massive or tacky, but it wasn't like right on the top of her head saying like, faith. Yeah, yeah. Arabic. It was sort of it. And it all, I think because the kind of the rest of the tiara looked so quite it looked very much like Arabic script the writing around the side blended in really well so it worked for well. I think you know if you were going to have a western tiara with love written on it it would work quite well if you had really curly writing yes. and you had like a curved tiara like a floral one like then it won't blend in yeah so I think it worked quite well I mean, I don't know how much royals are actually involved in these processes and things, but it's clear that there was like a, just a real coherency throughout when when she, they were deciding what she would wear, that like it felt everything worked so beautifully together from the hair and the makeup to the gown, to the tiara, to the veil, just everything just blended so beautifully. So it was definitely one of my new favourites. Yeah, I know. I kept going on about like the lighting and I know she was not in charge of the sun. no. But... <laughs> <laughs> I think everything just worked the sort of color scheme of the wedding was kind of like blushes and mm -hmm. champagnes and with the white and the simplicity of it everything looked really elegant but yes. in a, but not in like a um stately home way <laughs> like yes. elegant in a kind of simple but sort of clean and um tailored way and I think it sort of it suits what I know about Iman and her personality um it suited kind of being the smaller royal wedding of in Georgian of the year because when Hussein marries obviously he's the crown prince and I think yeah they got engaged so close together and I don't think there was ever going to be a I'm going to top your wedding yeah but it, it must be I always find it must be really frustrating when you get engaged and you get married and then like your family member who's just a little bit more important yeah, yeah. also does it because you're like well how do I make my wedding special now yeah yeah yeah, yeah no it made me really excited for the upcoming wedding because um Rajwa who's the fiance of Crown Prince Hussein seems like a very elegant woman um and it made me interested to see what choices that she'll make um but it felt like yeah it felt very Iman it felt like her wedding and um it, yeah it was just it was it was really beautiful So for our second topic today, our probably slightly larger topic, we jump from royal weddings and dresses and tiaras to the concept of military. <laughs> um, because there was a reason for this, because within the last week, there have been a few um, sort of military linked stories that have come out from different countries. So the two kind of 
big stories that came out this week was one from Spain, which was the news that Princess Leonor of Spain, who is the heir to the throne, she is the eldest daughter of the king and queen, um, will be doing three years of military training when she finishes um, at school where she is currently at in Wales which is exactly what her father did when he was a prince when he was the prince of Astorius and then she'll go on and study law which is also exactly what her father did Mm. Um, and the other kind of news story that was linked was from Denmark and it was about Mr Marie Mm. um, who currently works in Paris as a defence attaché it's a great word I love the word attaché to the embassy of Denmark obviously he is in Denmark he's Danish he works in France in Paris um and in September they are going to move to Washington DC as a family so him Marie and their two children who are Prince uh, no sorry yeah yeah don't touch on that again don't bring that up again Countess Athena um and on the September the first he will work as the uh, in defense industry attache I should stop saying that in such a weird accent um, <laughs> to the embassy of Denmark in Washington DC um, but yeah so those two stories happened they were both military linked they both happened in the same week so we thought let's not actually talk about either of those but talk about military in general yeah I, mean, I got an anonymous message asking if we would talk about royals and the relationship but I suppose how we feel about Leonor and about the relationship with the military generally and I think um like we could have talked about them, but I don't really, I feel like I can't really explain my feelings about Leonor going into the military unless I explain my thoughts on the military. Um, so <laughs> I would have had to do this anyway. And also we've talked pretty extensively about the rift in Denmark. And I feel like this is just another example of like, now they're going away. Like what else can we really say about it other than they're going away? There's not much. <laughs> um, so I thought that we thought that there was more in it to talk about kind of the military generally. And we will touch on some examples as we go through uh, but those were the stories that kind of sparked the interest today it, we, as always when we talk about these theme topics we sometimes t- touch on the sort of history of things and I'm not going to go into detail about every single battle that was fought because I, we don't have time um, but uh, <laughs> I think behind the church the military is probably the institution which has the closest connection to the monarchy Um, And part of that is because for hundreds and hundreds of years, monarchs were actively leading battles. They were actively deciding who their country would go to war with. They'd go go to the front line of the battles and give rousing speeches to the troops to encourage them to go and die for the country. And a lot of those things are also kind of immortalized on screen or like in plays. So like Shakespeare plays will have these rousing battle scenes or um, we might have seen in movies sort of um, Queen Elizabeth I doing her iconic speech on the battlefront. And so a lot of those historical scenes of royalty that have been immortalized on screen or on plays and things are scenes from battlefields because those were really important parts of what the royals and what the monarch did. The kind of like those really key figures in British royal history so William the Conqueror like quite literally became king by killing the king of England in battle (laughs) it happened so it's it's you know those really key historical moments in British royalty you know arguably the most sort of famous or infamous royal family were centered around battles and around um 
the wars and fighting. So even if, you know, your specific country or a specific monarchy didn't always, you know, wasn't as closely linked, I think the link between the British monarchy and the British military um, kind of overshadows a lot of other countries' um, history in a way. With most monarchies, the things that people are most interested in tend to be who they were getting busy with um, and who they were <laughs> marrying and, and those sorts of things, or it's war. So if you see a book that's written or a TV show that's, you know, those are the defining things. It's always who they're sleeping with or who they're fighting. I think, yeah, that it, it's very difficult to separate the two in the popular imagination because all of these really historic, pivotal moments in, in Western history in particular are associated with the monarchy and the military together. And kind of over time, parliamentary monarchies developed. And so the power kind of shifted away from the monarch to a balance between the monarch and the government. And that's kind of the systems that we have today. Uh, but as with most areas, a kind of balance was struck. So um, the actual decisions about war and things like that are not taken by Charles. He's not like, ah, today I want to go to war with Estonia. Um, for no apparent reason, um, but he is still the nominal head of the armed forces. In lots of countries, like for example Spain, it's written into the constitution that um, they are the head of the military, and uh, so it's something that is kind of it's taken very seriously to this day. Of like soldiers swear in the in the UK anyway, soldiers swear allegiance to the monarch. They don't swear it to the state; they swear it to the monarch. So. The royal, the monarch now isn't actually going to the front of the battlefield necessarily or isn't giving rousing speeches and doing those things that we think of because of what we've seen in movies. But that relationship is still still exists. And even though it's just a nominal one, it's very important to people in the monarchy and in the military. Yeah, I think, you know, when you talk to people in the military or military families, um, even if sort of they themselves aren't monarchists, they they was like well we're fighting in the name of you know in the name of the queen or in the name of the king um so they and you know when you see things like royal funerals or royal um birthday celebrations the military is that which is a really weird thing when you actually break it down it's like happy birthday here's some soldiers <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it is like they they're always there at those key moments yeah i think what you actually just said kind of very nicely actually leads me into the next bit that I've got, which is about sort of the actual ways that this manifests. So we've briefly touched on the fact that, you know, historically the relationship was incredibly important because it was actually the monarch who was do doing the battle stuff and was, I mean, I'm sure they were well protected and, um, you know, had their own guard and, you know, they weren't like a normal soldier on the field, but they were there and they were making the decisions and they were actively involved. And then we've talked about, you know, to the, in the present day, that relationship so how does this kind of actually manifest in day-to-day -day life and what you just touched on there is one is the first category that I have which is kind of pageantry um <laughs> yes pomp and pageantry. Pomp and pageantry um so historically the monarch had a thing where they would choose the best soldiers to guard them and so they would often be going out to kind of greet the people and do their pageants and things and they would have this little guard around them that was specifically to protect them and then over time, that kind of evolved into the military doing their own sort of public spectacles that the royals happened to attend. And so, you know, you mentioned funerals there, but, you know, jubilees and birthdays and all sorts of things will have some kind of 
military presence where there's just like soldiers there who walk around a bit sometimes they wave a flag sometimes they beat some drums um but they're there all the time in these pageants i i forget like how big the military presence is in like the uk in terms of things like these sort of ceremonial things yeah because you don't think about it because most of the time if something ceremonial like that's happening i'm focusing on like yeah well, I'm focusing on Kate. I'm focusing on one person. Yeah. I'm focusing on the Royals. Or like, you know, I'm just doing a day-to-day, you know, doing a day trip to London and then I accidentally get caught up in a crowd of tourists <laughs> and then looking at like five people in red outfits. I'm like, what's happening? I'm just trying to get to the shop. <laughs> um, but I, it's, it's like, it is like a continuous um, thing that is sort of embedded into British culture to, you know, to such an extent that it doesn't stand out and I think if you said to someone like oh actually every week or like twice a week some soldiers do a military parade outside the head of state's home you'd be like sounds a bit dodgy (laughs) well you know it's really interesting because when I was making these categories I was like right I'm going to go from sort of the least involvement so like the most hands-off to the most hands-on and that will make sense when I go through but um that's what I was that was the way that I was structuring it and I actually completely forgot about this um the side of things <laughs> because it's so just embedded within um all of these major occasions that there's just like the military is just there and they're just doing things and I don't really necessarily watch all of them or pay that much attention but um you know it is it is so uh common that you just kind of almost forget that it kind of is such a huge thing and it's weird because when I look at the US, for example, I think of them as a much more militaristic society than we are. Um, so I just don't think of it as that much of our everyday life. But actually, it really is when you look at all of these major traditions that happen um, from, yeah, like them doing parades on a daily basis outside the house to Trooping the Colour. There's the Queen's birth or the monarch's birthday. There's like the Red Arrows who will do a display who are kind of a, what are they called? Air Force. Um, and they're part of the military and it's just and like every parade they do there will be some sort of element of the military or people who who are just drumming at an event you might think oh they're just drummers but no they're military drummers it's like they, they are just <laughs> it's so I think because of the the pageantry element of things even though the, the reason I put this as the least as sort of the most hands-off is because the royals aren't actually doing anything um, that's connected to the military but it's that this is the area which is meant that alongside films and things, this is why the military and the monarchy are so closely intertwined in the public imagination, because a royal event will just have military there. That's that's always a thing. It's, and so it's hard to separate the two. We don't even think of them as separate things, but because they're always together. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I think back to Will and Kate's wedding, and mm. they, you know, when they were doing, like, on the day of the wedding, I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but when they would, like, go to Kate's primary school and there'd be a bunch of old ladies in there having, yeah, you know, yeah. watching on a big screen, like, they'd also go to, like, Helmand and talk yeah. to the soldiers, <laughs> and they'd just be like, oh, how are you feeling on the royal wedding? And they'd all be sat there with, like, Union Jack bunting, like, yay, wedding! Like, obviously, they're not actually, like, Woo-hoo! but I think, it, you know, like they they made the effort to send someone to Afghanistan yeah. to take a picture of some soldiers with bunting to celebrate the wedding, and they, they like you don't, I don't think about it. I probably just think at the time like that's a bit of a weird thing, but you know you don't think about it being um it's so normal for it to be happening for like royal military military royal whenever something big military happens um 
people kick up a fuss about all the royals needing to be there and I, it's vice versa as well so I think um, like you said it is really one of those key things that forces that sort of connection between the military and the monarchy in people's minds yeah definitely and it's it's obviously it's particularly strong in Britain just because we do pomp and pageantry more than pretty much any royal family so we have more of these occasions where the military are there but it isn't obviously unique to Britain so like I'm thinking um, of Crown Princess Victoria's names that name day in Sweden um, and her father's birthday or like jubilees, birthday celebrations, uh, things like that. There's a lot of pageantry in other royal families as well. They maybe don't do it as elaborately as we do because we're we're extra. Um, but <laughs> uh, they still have that connection where you'll have like a little parade or people will be wearing military uniform for these events and kind of. Um, so I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It'd be interesting to hear from other people about whether they feel the same way in their countries that they can't really separate these two institutions. Or is it more of a British thing because it's just so elaborate and so, you know, normalised? You know, there's now like entire units of the military that are just that just exist to do these pageantries and displays. Um, they don't actually. Well, I don't think they go to war. Um, they're just units that exist to go to Drooping the Colour and stuff like that. I mean, if I was kind of going to be forced to join the military, I'd like to join the uh, pageantry unit. <laughs> the pageantry unit. <laughs> I fly planes. It's like great. I march once a year. Yeah. And I'm really good at it. <laughs> yeah, I think I could probably just about manage that one. So yeah, that's kind of. I think that's one area that um, I I viewed it as the, the least hands on, um, but it's an incredibly important thing that kind of has always linked the two institutions in our in our imagination. Um, my next category is patronages. Royals kind of want to be seen to be supporting the military community because of the close ties between them. So a lot of the time they will be going to like charities or they'll support charities and have patronages and connections to charities that support veterans or support the families of people who are serving during the war. Yeah, I know Harry had a few. He had a rugby one, like a specifically like a rug, like an injured serviceman rugby one. Um, and obviously Invictus. Yeah, quite a, quite a big one. Yeah, um, and I think Philip had quite a few as well. I I also found that when they had um, veteran patronages or military patronages, they were often really linked to another patronage. Like Harry had like I don't know what it was called like a rugby injured serviceman patronage, but he was also patron of England rugby, so mm. he'd always do them sort of as a joint a joint right. event. Right. So he could like tick them both off in one go. I, I like rugby and soldiers are here. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. I do both of these things at once. Yeah. I will get into some of my issues with the military and things later, but I find the patronage is less objectionable because it's always been strange to me when you see royals go to like a big military pageant and then go and visit a refugee charity and not <laughs> kind of recognise how those two things might be linked. And Whereas if you're going to visit with veterans, people who've already served and have come back with injuries or um, struggled to get a job when they come back or just struggled to adjust to life or families who haven't made the decision to be in the military themselves but are sitting at home with anxiety worrying about the safety of the people that they love that doesn't feel like an endorsement of the institution that just feels like helping people who need help and so I actually I'm, I find the patronages easier to get on board with because whether or not I agree with the military I agree that veterans deserve mental health care or stuff like you know so it's, it's less <laughs> I'm not a monster um so you know it, it's less troublesome for me when they get involved through the patronage angle people can pick less arguments with it because patronages and patrons don't need to be like experts yeah like no yes. one is sitting there going like you know oh no 
Edward is the patron of the Bristol Zoological Society. What does he know about zoos in Bristol? Like, no, he's not a monkey. <laughs> so he kicked up a massive fuss about his knowledge of like tree frog breeding programs yeah. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't need to. He's just he's just there to like smile and plant trees every now and then. And it's the same type of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. he's a, the patrons of the veterans are there to go and you know ha- give everyone a good day, raise a bit of awareness, yeah. and then go home again. Hug some children. Yeah, take a nice picture. So my next category is similar to patronages, but not really, uh, which is kind of the honorary roles that they have with the military. So obviously the monarch is usually head of the whole military, not in every country. In some countries it will be somebody from the military, but in a lot of countries, but then specific kind of regiments or I don't really know the terminology, but specific departments of the military uh, will have royals who are kind of their honorary colonel or something like that. I have, I actually thought it was really interesting when I was hunting through the every single European royal family trying to figure out what the actual link was between them and the military mm. is that this, I'm not saying it's an only British thing, but it's a very like a heavily British thing compared to most countries. In, in most countries, it's like the heir has maybe an honorary title um, maybe another, like a, a brother or a distant cousin, if they were in um, the military themselves, they might have given one. Um, and then in Britain, I mean, if you happen to be have met the Queen once, you might have got an honorary title out of it. Everyone's got one, honestly. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in charge of one of the units here, near me. Uh, Grace has got three. She's she's rolling ahead. Yeah, I do. One one army, one navy, one air force. Mm-hmm. I take them all. Yeah, so it goes to everyone. But yeah, you're right. I think um, I was trying to look at the same thing and I, I found like mentions on various places, but I don't really see them do anything for these organisations. Um, and, and and I don't know if they're like big parts of the military or if they're just like small random units. So it, yeah, I, there doesn't, the connection in Britain does seem, I know we're, we said we weren't going to talk about Britain if we could help <laughs> it, but they just can't, they just keep doing this to us. Um, <laughs> just stick their noses in everywhere. They do, they do. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think that is the kind of the most active honorary roles will be found in Britain. So, I mean, actually, one military thing that I forgot had happened that um, is also kind of related is that we had the Patrick's, St. Patrick's Day Irish Guards. Oh, yeah. With, yeah, with, uh, Kate and William went to the Irish Guards because William's the outgoing honorary colonel and Kate is the incoming one. She's replacing him. And so, like, she's in charge of the Irish Guards and William's got the Welsh Guards now. So, And there's loads of other examples. Yeah, I was I was thinking as we were kind of talking about the prevalence of it, like from the 1st of March to the 17th of March, Kate's done like three yeah. engagements specifically around like celebrating the military. And that's not counting things like the Commonwealth Day where the military were also there. <laughs> like it's it's been quite a lot in a really short period of time. Yeah, it really has. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I think they often, you know, they, they visit them quite often and often will be like wearing uniform if they go and visit and it's, it is a very sort of active even though it's an honorary role and they're not actually deciding anything and they're not actually in charge of anything it does seem to be something that the British royals in particular take very seriously yeah and it's such a like a I don't say like it's such a big deal because I think in the real world it isn't a big deal hmm. but in the royal watching world it, I it became this massive deal about who was colonel of what and who was yeah chief of I don't know what titles are in military and there's a colonel it's kind of a major is there any majors out there yeah admiral um, that's my favorite <laughs> vice admiral um and there's like all these you know there was this massive thing so I very much assumed that every single royal family had just given out all these like 
colonel ships to like a bunch of children and it was like this huge thing and it was really important and then I researched this and was like no it's like Britain and Denmark and maybe like one other country <laughs> do this apart from like and who like actively then take on you know visiting them and doing things like that everyone else is just kind of like great thanks new title I'm off yeah and I think because it's such a big thing it can definitely sometimes be quite controversial um so unlike patronages where you know as Grace said you're not expected to necessarily be an, an expert you just have to have the interest and the passion for it and hopefully you learn over time but you know it's just really about showing up there's a lot there's been a lot of criticism of certain royals for getting ranks despite never having served and I think for women, it seems to be more understandable um, because a military career for women wasn't as normalized, and we'll get to that later on, but uh, it wasn't as normalized as it was for the men. And that, like, if you look at like, somebody like Princess Anne, she's got honorary military positions and she wears the uniform and she rides on the back of the horse at Troop in the Colour rather than the front of the horse. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, she rides, that was a stupid thing to say, she rides on the horse. Um, and I think like Anne has earned respect, but there's also the element of like she what she wasn't going to serve because women in her period of time probably weren't serving in the military very often. Um, but if you look at somebody like Prince Edward, who tried to train in the Marines and dropped out, um, a lot of people are like, oh, well, he's a little wussy. Um, how <laughs> he shouldn't get a position because he didn't actually manage to even bother completing the training. And now he's got some sort of like position of authority and power over people who actually could hack it and could stay in the military and are still serving. And so because of the importance of these honorary roles you get a lot of criticism around them in a way that you don't get for the patronages or the pageantry kind of thing I'm sure we get I know we're going to talk more about our opinions on the military later mm -hmm. but I think you know I I've never been that fussed about the military so I've always just very much been like yeah give anyone it yeah, give me yeah. I'll take charge of all of the military but there's there's definitely the kind of the two strands of military personnel who are upset or frustrated that people who have never done any sort of military work or and never will have these even you know, honorary honorary positions of authority over them and once a year they all go and have to sort of you know salute to them or do things for them and they've never served and I think that's definitely sort of one sort of strand of thinking or thoughts and complaints kind of going out sort of around honorary positions and then you will have it also coming from people who aren't in the military but who kind of put really bizarre <laughs> rules almost like on it yeah so people be like oh and Anne's allowed to ride on horseback yeah but that's it for female royals and it's I get it I get why you know Anne has been given this kind of like special permission because <laughs> she's Anne and she like you said she probably was never going to go to the military because of you know when she was born and all those things um but then they tune to people just like to make arbitrary rules and be like well Camilla can't do it she can never ride on a horse she's not allowed even though you know they're all on an honorary rank it's like every single member of the British royal family's rank is an honorary one they've all been elevated past whatever their one was when they you know if they served um and the military's the military the monarchy is very much an unequal thing like yeah. it's bizarre to me when people get really sort of het up about Kate being colonel of the Irish Guards because she's never served in the military. It's like she's going to be queen. Like yeah. that—that's a whole unequal thing. <laughs> like I just—it—I always—it doesn't bother me. But it, I do find it quite funny when people get really frustrated about sort of inequality um, in something like an honorary military position. Because it's not like 
inequality in terms of you know race or gender within a family it's like here's a made-up title we're giving you it is a strange thing because also it's not like the, the military are not an unequal institution like I, I think particularly um the sort of wing around the uh this sort of household they're not a household department you know what I mean they're the, the ones <laughs> yeah. who do the pageantry that we were talking about earlier they're not quite the same as like a normal army infantry or whatever they are specifically designed to be associated with the monarchy and do these national events and things and um I was looking at the guy who's currently in charge his dad is a prince like <laughs> this is and all of them have been white guys pretty much uh, a lot of them will have been like privately educated and gone to Eton. So it's not as if that is a fair institution either. So, yeah, I mean, I do sometimes wonder why we don't see Kate in military uniform as much. And I, you know, I don't support the military as an institution and I will get to that, but I, I do, I do like uniforms. So I would quite like her to support women in uniform. Yeah, support <laughs> women in uniform. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, it would be nice for me to see Kate in a uniform because Anne always looks great in hers. But um yeah, it just it it just makes me laugh, and I think you know, the honorary positions, um, in particularly in Britain and Denmark, are kind of areas where the royals almost go above and beyond what they do for their patronages, because patronages they like rock up once every three or four years yeah. and do an engagement, and it's whereas the military ones tend to be once or twice a year, regularly, maybe another bonus one, um. And it's it's very because it because it's the military, it's very, very structured, but it is like you can you can almost like set your calendar by it. You know, you know, in March this is happening, in November this is happening, it's gonna be something in July, you know, it's very yeah, yeah. um regular. Yeah, definitely, definitely. My next category is training, military training, which in some countries it was it's quite common um for royals to have had military training. Sometimes that's because it was compulsory and they had to, like in Sweden. <laughs> so like Prince Daniel in Sweden has got military training, even though he was obviously never growing up. He never expected to become the husband of the heir to the Swedish throne. Um, he was just a private citizen, but he had to do it because everybody had to do it at the time. <laughs> love it. Love when they just randomly drop something like that in. Like, Surprise! Sweden had compulsory military service. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think in other countries, it's not necessarily compulsory, but I think it's very much seen as wise, especially for the heir to the throne. If we put aside my feelings for a moment, they the fact of the matter is that they are going to, if they're the heir, they are going to be head of the military in most countries. And in other countries, they might not be the head, or if they're not the heir, they might not be the head, but they might get an honorary position. Um, and I think that you sort of related to that kind of honorary position thing you can command more respect if you actually know the basic training and you you could sort of do the job I suppose there was there was a period when I was when I was researching through countries and I got to like a run of about three or four in a row and it was just a bunch of like monarchs and heirs who were like they did the basic training and then they did the minimum compulsory training and then they left and I was like okay you've literally only done it because you had to and I feel that honestly a vibe for sure um (laughs) I think definitely um you can see that with like particularly the heirs and also like the um like sort of heir spouses like the ones you can't you can't really just send off to war but you also don't want to be like have them just appear one day being technically legally in charge of the military of a country not knowing what that is so and they tend to do it sort of semi-regularly throughout the year so 
um, if you use William as an example, he did active service, which we'll come on to, but he also every now and then does like three weeks training with a random branch of the military in like private, and then he comes back like, surprise, you'll never know anything about it. Yeah, and Crown Princess Victoria, she um, did her basic military training when she was younger, again, because she had to, but she probably would have done it anyway. Um, but now she is going back and doing training days with the, the military as a you know much older woman, mother of three, and you know just kind of to keep herself up to date with what's going on. Um, and I think it's interesting because that was something that was highlighted in the statement that was released uh, by the Spanish court when they were saying where Leonor was going to uh, do her military uh, training. I don't know whether they, I don't know specifically why they included this. They've been on a bit of a transparency kick lately. So their statements have been full of helpful information, but um, they put in the statement specifically that the reason she was doing this training um, was because she was one day going to be head of the military. And that was part of the constitution, whether she likes it or not, whether people like it or not, it's in the constitution. So they thought that it was appropriate that she could say that she has at least done the, the mandatory training that is expected. It, it's 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 a smart decision to make that I think it's probably easier to look people in the eye if you have at least done the training kind of actually it's very similar to my attitude at work because I <laughs> I hate being criticized by people who could, I know for a fact couldn't do the job themselves I really hate it um so I think it's kind of a similar thing that if I was a soldier I probably wouldn't want somebody who hadn't at least done the basic training they have to do I mean I'd hate it if I was the royal, this is one of the many reasons I'm glad I'm not a royal, um, because it sounds like hell on earth. Like it's so much physical activity, but I think it is a smart decision to have, particularly the heir, do it. Yeah, and I think particularly, you know, we're getting becoming regular to a period of time where almost all the heirs are female. Yeah, and you know, often when it was their parents' generation, or even or their grandparents, their pa- their mothers or grandmothers couldn't serve in the military because for some countries it's been incredibly recent you can have women in the military let alone in active service so I think you know in like you said with the Spain they were like she's gonna be she this woman this yeah. girl is going to be the head of the military one day um Victoria is obviously going to be head of state one day um yeah. Princess Elizabeth of Belgium she did a year well a year military-ish training at military academy yeah um and it's kind of like I don't think it's like being a push above and beyond with what the sort of male heirs are doing, but I think they're being very explicit being like, look, she, this girl, female, yeah, still needs to do it. Although we've moved on in a lot of ways, there probably will be some people who are like, oh, I don't want to take, I don't want to listen to a woman. Um, And (laughs) so there probably is sort of an extra added emphasis, like, no, she's going to do this um, because she takes the role just as seriously as her father does. And it's part of the job and she's going to show that she can do it so you know I, I think that's a good thing I think yeah I think it's just ultimately a sensible decision um and it's that's reflected in the fact that so many different royal families do it it is training for the military but it's also training for your future role and so yeah that's what I think why so many royal families do it also on a really superficial level it does give us a lot more opportunities for women in uniform yes which we love so <laughs> bonus a big fan yeah uh and then I think so lots of royals that we've talked about don't actually go and serve once they've done their training they just do the kind of basic training that they have to do or that they are that it's seen that they should be doing um but then the kind of the area that I thought was the most involved in the military of all um <laughs> was active service or going into the military as your career 
Um, and sometimes that might might mean actually going into a combat zone. Sometimes it doesn't. But I just mean like working for the monarchy, uh, working for the military. Yeah. And there is, I think this is the area where there is the most, but also like weird discrepancies between the countries mm-hmm. like Belgium. Um, you know, King Felipe did a year at mili- the military academy. Princess Elizabeth did. Prince Gabriel of Belgium is going to or he is doing right now um but none of those three have done active service um the queen and queen matilda's got absolutely no role in the military at all which would be bizarre if it was camilla that you'd be like um excuse me do some work camilla um and whereas you get countries like you know denmark or norway or the uk where there are lots and lots of royals who have Mm -hmm. done active military service and then countries like spain where the whole country is a military the monarchy came from military service in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know why, because when I was writing this, I was thinking, well, it makes sense that on many occasions the air wouldn't actually go in, into a combat zone. And there was like tons of conversations about that in the UK because Harry went and served overseas and then he had to come back for a bit because people found out he was there. And like it was basically ruled out that William could ever go to Afghanistan or anything like that because the danger of, of them going out and they could potentially die but also they could be a target and put their whole unit at risk if somebody found out they were there. So I think, you know, in some circumstances, it makes sense that the air focuses on the training because that's all that they can do. But then there are other royals who have, who are heirs to the throne who have done um, active service. I don't know if they necessarily went to combat zones, but they were actively part of the military and that was seen as being fine. So yeah, I don't really know why. The three, four, the four monarchies, the European monarchies that kind of really stood out as having Five, maybe. Four or five. <laughs> That's going from three. Four or five monarchies that really stood out. Seventeen monarchies. <laughs> <laughs> like, actual military service are obviously Britain, um, Denmark, Luxembourg, of all places, considering the tiny little military <laughs> they have. Um, and then also, like, within the Netherlands and Norway, there are, like, William, Ale- William Alexander and Hakon. Like, no one else, but just those two are quite involved. I mean, Luxembourg absolutely cracked me up. Like, their military is like 986 people. It's Aww. barely anyone. They, they often come to Sandhurst, don't they, and have to train over here. Yes, yeah, so many of them come to Sandhurst. I was going through the list of, like, royal alumni from Sandhurst, and it's loads. Um, <laughs> but then, like, the, the sort of the last Grand Duke of Luxembourg was a member of the Irish Guards for a really long time. Yeah. And the current Grand Duke was in the Parachute Regiment. I was like, you're in the wrong... It's, imagine if... William was the worked in the I don't know Dutch military (laughs) it's bizarre it wouldn't happen but no just the whole of Luxembourg royal family have been working in the British military (laughs) and I can't get over it it's just completely thrown me as a person uh, yeah it'd be interesting again if somebody is maybe from Belgium for example and could explain to us it was you know if there was any conversation in Belgium about Philippe or um oh Philippe and Elizabeth and why they didn't go into the military for active service. If there's any conversations that people can share with us about that, that would be very helpful. There are a few royals, royal heirs, who are like incredibly militarily, like they've done a lot of stuff for the military, but also like really hard stuff. Mm. Um, like Hakon is a literally a paratrooper. Like that's, I don't know much about the military, but I know that's a, like a big <laughs> mega one. Yeah. And... Uh, Frederick of Denmark um, 
has worked across the board you know in in all the services he was like a frogman which is like combat diving which i don't know how often actually comes up in the military but i think it should be more and it's, it's like the danish version of sas it's like the elite top which always surprises me because i know frederick's really fit and active but i never would have seen him as like the hardest military guy in the world <laughs> he just seems so soft and sweet and like nice yeah. um but he's like he was in the toughest regiment in the whole of denmark basically yeah and i love the visual image of just people in like scuba gear like fighting <laughs> with knives underwater which i'm sure is not what happens but is what happens in my head um <laughs> Probably is. Um, fighting sharks. Yeah, fight, fighting the enemy sharks. <laughs> um, and then obviously, I think in the UK, you kind of had from the Queen down mm. um, service of some kind because there is, I always find it weird when people are like, oh, the Queen served when she was, was in the um, auxiliary tertiary service or the women's um, auxiliary service in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then say William didn't serve in the same breath. Yeah when they put one above the other you know you've got people like you know Charles and William who have kind of extensive work in their sort of zone so for Charles that's the Air Force and the Navy and for William it's predominant he's trained in all three but it's predominantly the Air Force and search and rescue and they both worked in their sort of fields for quite a long time um before having to leave so Charles obviously when he retired he set up the Prince's Trust with his retirement severance pay um and William was a search and rescue pilot for like 50 years it felt like yeah. <laughs> and then you get you know Philip and Andrew and Harry all of whom who actively served in combat zones yeah. um whether that's you know Harry in Afghanistan Andrew in the Falklands or yeah. Philip in like World War Two and <laughs> everything else he did yeah yeah and and I think you just sort of mentioned something briefly there about like William doing his search and rescue stuff and um Harry after he couldn't fight anymore actively he had desk position for a little while and I think he did some of his Invictus work as part of that desk position uh before he had to leave the military entirely and then uh Joachim in Denmark kind of linking it back to why we're talking about this in the first place He's doing a job that is not actively serving in, in sort of on the front lines, but he is working in a desk job in the military. So it can very much be, especially for the lower down ones, it can end up being quite a long term career. And I actually it reminded me of our episode, Very Good Amateurs, if people want to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> yes. Um, which in that episode, we talked about sports. Um, so it's another thing where we were talking about something that neither of us really care about um, <laughs> uh, and made it work. Uh, and we were talking about like one royals often, if they have a career of some kind, it will often be in sporting arena because um, the military and sports both have the same quality in that it, like it's not a profit driven career. Like obviously, if you're a sports person as a as a job and you're not a royal, you want to make money and you get sponsorships and all those kinds of things. Um, but you can be a rower or a cyclist without having to make any money from it at all. It's not solely profit driven as the as the sports person. It's the same with the military. It's like this is institution that's government funded. Um, and although it is partisan, I suppose the soldiers themselves are not partisan. They're just carrying out orders. And it's yeah, it's not a profit driven thing. So I think to the royals, it's a good option for a career, especially for those lower down ones where you don't really know they might be working royal but they might not and how do you, what do you do with them <laughs> um essentially it's seen as kind of like 
a slightly more ethical option, which is ironic, but um, because it, <laughs> it doesn't open them up to corruption as much as being in a for-profit industry, um, as we've seen in the past from some examples. It's a royal who, who can kind of say that they're serving their country in, a, in an additional way. Yeah, and I think also kind of quite linked to the sports, like not just is it kind of a way to like serve the people, mm. but it's one of those it's one of those careers where you have to put the work in. Yes, yeah. Um, like you can't win an Olympic medal just because you're a royal, but like you yes. have to actually physically win it on the day. And I think you know there there have been stories about you know royals maybe like getting boosted into it because they're a royal, but at the end of the day, if you're in a war zone. They're not going to go, oh, everyone just keep, you know, Timmy over here safe. Like you're, you've got to put the work in the same as everyone else. And it's a real leveler. And I think Harry and William have spoken quite extensively about being in that kind of like communal space as just Harry Wells and William Wells. And they both said, I think for them both, um, a bit like when we spoke in our sort of university episode. Yes, yes. Um, it was it was a good leveler of meeting people and just mm-hmm. having to meet people from different walks of life and get on with them and not being the prince in the room just being oh the guy that forgot to buy the tea biscuits last Wednesday yeah. you know <laughs> you have to just sort of get on with it yeah it's as, as you were talking I was like oh my goodness I'm having deja vu we've talked about this topic already and we've just spent like an hour talking about but no it was because we it was pretty much the same point from the university episode and I just forgotten which one it was but you're so right of like <laughs> When the royals talk about the, their military service or their time in the military, they always do emphasize this idea of like, I was just one of the lads. And I don't know if that's necessarily true because I do think that they get special treatment. But to them, it's the closest they're ever going to come to kind of being ordinary people and just treated like everybody else. And they get their military nicknames and like Frederick has military tattoos of his nicknames and a shark on his ankle, which is so tacky, but it's supposed to be related to that he was <laughs> naval maybe it was he was sh- fighting sharks with knives underwater that's it clearly that's what he does <laughs> um yeah uh, so you know it, I think um they all talk about it very affectionately as being kind of um an area of life where they can go in and they can feel like they've earned something rather than just having it handed to them and they can feel just like an ordinary person so even though I don't necessarily support it I can understand why that is probably preferable to them kind of being on the board of a profit-driven business or it's preferable to them um, kind of stepping into a career that they haven't actually got any experience in and they've just earned it based on their name, which I suppose is being a royal, you know. So, yeah, I think we've hinted at the perhaps controversial thing. I'm very conscious of the fact that more than half of our audience come from the United States and I don't know how this is going to go down. But um, I am a bleeding heart liberal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm a pacifist and I'm all very airy fairy and oh, wouldn't it be nice if we all got along and come by our kind of thing. Um, so I don't support the military as an institution. Um, I think that it causes a lot of harm. And so it, I do find it difficult that the monarchy is so inseparably linked to the military because I just don't as an institution don't support it yeah I think I feel very similarly my biggest thing has always been there's always been I think particularly over the last few years there's been this real sort of narrative around who's the better royal Mm. based on like who's done the most military service yeah and 
I I'm not like against every soldier that's ever lived. I'm against like the concept of a military and yes. the institution of it. I don't like have a deep hatred for individual soldiers. Yeah, and it's the same as how we feel about the royals, which is that we don't yeah. necessarily support the institution, but we like them as individuals. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I get that it is a job, and for some people, like the military is it is a whole way of life. It's a whole type of life, and it, you get military families, and that's a whole thing. But when people have these narratives come out about how you know this world best because they did three years active service or they're the strongest world because they did this and I'm like it's it's one facet of monarchy and it's the facet I a care the least about and b I'd rather like my favorite role had nothing to do with it because then it's a lot easier for me to be in, be impartial about it I you know do I like seeing Kate in uniform yes I would really love to see her in a proper full-on military formal uniform However, if she had never been made colonel of the Irish Guards, I also would not have cared because I would happily, if be just as happy she never did anything for the military ever. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you're right that there is a separation between the institution and the individuals. And I think I very much, you know, I, I think in particularly in the US, there's a lot of sort of exploitation and kind of preying on teenagers or preying on vulnerable people to kind of convince them to sign up for something that they aren't really fully equipped to understand what they're signing up to um and I think that's a real problem and uh you know also there is just a culture in some families of of if your grandparents have, and your parents and your great-grandparents have all served that you serve and so I don't blame individuals I also know that if you've gone overseas and you've served somewhere and you come back and things are difficult for you that you'd absolutely deserve support because you've done something that that you were asked to do and you're suffering as a result of it so I'm not I'm not blaming individual people who are part of that military life. Um, it is very much about kind of the institution. And um, I think, so that's why I don't, I don't mind if they go and visit their patronages and things uh, that are connected to this area, because I, I understand that those people need support like anybody else, but it is uncomfortable, not just because there's a close connection between them, but because a lot of it is a real glorification of the military. So yeah, it's it's just it doesn't sit well for me um, when they get involved in a more active level. And uh, you know, as I've said, I understand why they do because I think if you're you're going to be the head of the military no matter what, and so if that's going to happen, it is it does make sense to have some active service or it does make sense to do the training. And I don't blame them as individuals for doing the job that they have to do. Um, but I don't hear it. I think maybe because of what we were saying about them being so in inseparably linked that we don't even think about it I don't actually hear this being spoken about that much kind of how I don't see a lot of other people saying how uncomfortable they are with it so <laughs> I don't know if it's just us <laughs> just like yeah oh, so awkward yeah um but yeah I think you know it's like Leonor doing three years military training um like would I rather she wasn't doing three years military training on one hand, yes, but also like if all if all the boys are doing it, if all the male heirs are doing their three years of military training, and her job is one day, like the Spanish said, going to be the head of that military, I you know I understand the concept of doing something for your job. Yeah, like yeah. you know, we all do that. <laughs> I have to teach geography lessons. I hate them. You know, <laughs> we all do things we don't like. Yeah. Um, but then I really I think there is such a narrative. And I, I don't know if it's because there are so many Americans in the Royal sort of Royal Watchers. And I, I do think the military is viewed so differently in America, not necessarily completely positively, but I think it is viewed completely differently than it is in Europe. 
um and, but it's it's such a thing and it seems to be a real positive like yes I love you know St Patrick's Day and I love the Remembrance Sunday service and I can't wait for all these you know I can't wait to see them wear a uniform and all these things and I find you know it's I find it really well not really easy but I find it fairly easy to switch my brain off from the fact that they're a monarchy and you know they're a bunch of rich people who have an unequal amount of power I can switch my brain off from that and be like yeah can't hear you oh, no no I'm fine but when they start doing Start doing the military stuff I'm like oh no I'm finding it really hard now yeah, yeah. um so yeah it's much better for me if they just don't do it yeah definitely I, I think sometimes it is strange especially when it's like Harry and Meghan's fans to see them praising the military like they're both I, I thought they were like socially liberal and progressive and they're like yay British military it's like really do you not know what they did historically guys um, they were the bad guys they were the bad guys but like um, whole of history yeah so I, that's that's very very odd to me but I think yeah I, I I'm I'm in a similar position to you where like it makes me uncomfortable and when it's an ostentatious display I find it particularly uncomfortable so that's why I think mentally I like I've never watched the full trooping the cup oh well, that's not true I think I watched it last year um because we were talking about it in the podcast and it was part of the jubilee so I watched the trooping the cup once um through the whole way through normally I just look at the pictures of them on the balcony and that's about because that's all I can stomach um <laughs> but I think it's it's sort of I, I've reached a point where it's sort of like there is no way out of it um, these these links are hundreds of years old and in many cases are legally required of the royals so they have to have some form of connection whether you know they can decide how that works but they'll have to have some kind of connection because they're the head of the military um, and so uh, to a degree when there's a situation where like I can't see any way out of it I kind of just have to deal with that so if I want to keep talking about royals, it's kind of an unavoidable fact that I'm occasionally going to feel uncomfortable. Um, and I don't talk about it all that much just because I think it can be a, a topic that people get very sensitive about. But also I think people just get tired of me being like, I don't like the military. I just find it. <laughs> like, I'm feeling uncomfortable again, guy. <laughs> Can't we all just get along? <laughs> is all we have got time for today we hope that you enjoyed today's episode um um and if you you know do have any sort of ideas for topics we do I, we do see them all we always reply yes. to them. we do see them all. they're on a really long list on my phone so we do get around to them if we get like a message sometimes we won't post it until we talk about that episode until we've decided so there might be some things that are in the vault but we we will answer <laughs> them eventually so yeah just let us know if there's anything you want us to talk about um but yes, until then, uh, listen back to all our recent episodes. Give us five stars anywhere you can. And we will see you probably next week. And until that point, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.